You are listening to the Pragmatic Christian Podcast with your host, Hayden Bruce. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show and welcome to episode 30 of the podcast. In this episode, I am interviewing Andrew Jasko. Um, This would be the natural place for part five of our pragmatism conversation, but we're going to take a slight break from that series. Um, We're going to be talking about Richard Rorty, the American philosopher, and we're going to end the series with a conversation about Tim and my own um, reflections on pragmatism as a philosophy. Um, So we will finish that up on an episode, um, a couple episodes from now. But in this episode, I talked to Andrew Jasko. This is going to be part one of two conversations I have with Andrew. Um, Andrew does work in, in psychology and coaching people out of unhealthy relationships with God. And so in this, in this episode, not this relationship, in this episode, we talk about some of his critiques and criticisms of religion in general and Christianity specifically. Um, and then he comes back on for part two, doing a reconstructive work where we explore some of the more positive ways of thinking about the divine and spirituality and how to live a religious life. Um, And so you guys will want to check out part two of this conversation as well, which will release in a couple days after I release this one. Um, I had a lot of fun talking to Andrew. You can connect with him and his work um, through links in the show notes. And if you would like to help Um, promote and support this show, you can do so by going over to iTunes and rating and reviewing us. That really helps people find the show. And I would genuinely like to hear your guys' feedback. And in the spirit of hearing your guys' feedback, you can go over to the website, pragmaticchristian.com. Go over to the contact page and fill out the form and email us to let us know your complaints uh, feedback, comments, all that stuff. I want to hear from you guys and I will read your emails on the show and respond to them. Um, I really want to hear from you guys, you know, know, just to know, you know, what people are thinking about the show, what people are thinking about the content, the conversations and all of that. You can also go over to Patreon and support us there for as little as a dollar a month. And you can go over to Twitter and follow us at Pragmatic Christ. Um, you can follow me too at Hayden the Bruce, um, and you guys can get connected in all those different ways. Um, I can't do it without your guys' support. We are averaging at about 1,400 downloads a month, so we got ourselves a small little group of listeners, and I'd like to make that a group of, or not a group, but a community. I'd like to hear from you guys and have you guys interact with each other, so we are moving in that direction, and I'm excited about that. So now, let's get into our conversation with Andrew Jasko, part one. Uh, I was immediately interested in your ideas and what you do or what I perceived you to do, but so that we're not working off of misperceptions, why don't you just um, go ahead and tell me uh, what exactly you do? Uh, I know you're involved in psychology and you meet with people, but why don't you uh, give your own self-description there? Absolutely. So I work to expose 
spiritual and psychological abuse in religious systems and to help people heal from the trauma that's caused by being in religious systems and being under these kind of authoritarian ways of, of conceiving reality. And I coach people who are healing from religious trauma, and I'm also studying to become a clinical psychologist right now, working on my doctorate. And you have a website, right? So you do write a little bit. Is that primarily where your uh, written work comes out of? Yes. I have a website. It's called lifeafterdogma.org. I have hundreds of pages of articles just working on exposing the various kinds of psychological manipulation and harm and emotional toxicity that people can experience within these religious systems and what it looks like to heal. How, how do we reconstruct our identities and our lives after that? And how do we heal our sexuality or experience spirituality and integrate into secular society? So all kinds of topics like that. Yeah, I mean, I'll have links to all that stuff in the show notes for uh, my audience. But before we get into all those topics, um, where did you begin with uh, religion? Was that something that you um, were born into or came to later in life and then rejected? You know, tell your story. I was born into religion. And so my parents started a church when I was, I think, about a, a couple months old. And I was raised in a Pentecostal Assemblies of God Christian church. Mm -hmm. Pentecostalism is a very experiential form of Christianity. They believe in the literal word of God and signs and wonders and in world evangelism. And I was born into this system. I was given a prophecy before I was born that I was going to be this leader in the church who was going to help lead people back to God. Uh, so I grew up with this huge identity believing that it was my mission to help bring about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I was totally devoted to Christianity in every way possible. I was really, really going all out. And I went to Wheaton College, an evangelical school, to study Bible theology and evangelism. And I went to Princeton Theological Seminary to get my Master of Divinity to learn the original biblical languages, because I considered myself a student of the Word of God, not anyone's particular interpretation. I really wanted to know what God said for myself. And I was going to become a missionary to India. That was my lifelong goal, to be a career missionary to India, because India had the most unreached people groups, these distinct ethno-linguistic tribal groups of people. And we believed that Every people group on the planet needed to have a church in order for Jesus to come back. So it was very strategic for me to go there and train leaders to evangelize their Hindu and Muslim families. And then when we reached all these people groups, Jesus would come back. So I was about to go and become a missionary to India. And then I had my rude awakening while I was in seminary and ended up leaving Christianity. Completely? Completely, yeah. Well, uh, this might end up turning into a uh, 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 counseling session because uh, <laughs> as a lot of people that um, that know me, just from the things I've talked about on this show and those that know me personally, uh, I have almost an identical story to the one you just told. So we're going to get into it. <laughs> um, but uh, I guess before we kind of reverse, um, just so I can 
understand and put some parameters on the conversation. So you say that you left Christianity um, and religion completely behind. Your work, Religion Without Dogma, um, is that something that you are now working through and reconstructing, or is it really much a past tense, uh, religion is now over for you in a in any like significant way? I tried out liberal or what what they call progressive forms of Christianity. Yeah. And they never really worked for me. Mm-hmm. And I, I ended up becoming a Presbyterian minister, actually, after I gave up my missionary vocation, after I decided evangelicalism didn't work for me. And I'm not telling people, you know, what to do in their own journey. That's kind of what I don't want to do. Right. But at the same time, for me, a liberal Christianity, I ended up, having the same kinds of problems that I had to begin with, which was specific teachings in the Bible. The Bible itself was the source of the religious, uh, spiritual, psychological abuse that I encountered, and I could never get around that with any amount of interpreting. So for me, I'm, I no longer consider myself any version of religious. I consider myself very spiritual, mm-hmm. which I know a lot of relig- my religious friends hate that term, spiritual but not religious, but right. oh well. Yeah, so um, we can uh, reverse a little bit then. I have a very similar story. Uh, I grew up also in the Assemblies of God and also at uh, one senior high camp summer. Um, <laughs> spoken tongue for the first time during this service and was prophesied over and a very similar thing. You're going to reach the end of the world. You're going to go where people haven't gone before and be part of a new awakening and, uh, and revival and all this stuff. And that too really, really became part of my, uh, my own self identity. And this is probably, I mean, I was probably 15, 16, you know, so pretty early on. And maybe we can talk more about um, self-identity during like this early like time frame where things like this, where prophecies are being spoken over you, um, you are receptive to things that perhaps you won't be receptive to later on. So maybe we could just uh, pause there for a little bit and talk about that. Um, what do you, I mean, obviously you have thoughts on this, but what do you think about that time frame of these early years where kids are going to youth group and, um, you know, for much of evangelical culture, especially in the West, uh, the youth group is really like the pinnacle, um, like area of, sorry, my, uh, my computer is, can you hear me? Hello? All right, we are recording. Um, Yeah, so before our connection went down, I was just saying that um, in Western Christianity, evangelical uh, Christianity specifically, like the youth group is super prevalent in the kind of like Christian self-understanding and the way that – that Christianity like does church. Uh, it's su- like they want to get young people in early and make a connection early so that they can continue to influence other young people and carry their Christianity into their adult life. So I feel, you know, looking back at my time in youth group and looking at how um, I've seen youth groups uh, work in other churches, I see, you know, it, it really seems very like propagandistic where it's like we want to try to throw as much as we can and make and make a early connection as soon as possible with young people um and i don't i i don't think that 
this is all conscious, by the way, or at least the, um, well, I, I do think it's conscious. Maybe you can parse those things out, but what do you think about this idea of getting young people early and trying to make that early connection to, um, you know, to go out into their uh, adulthood? Evangelism is predatory. Mm. And, and the Great Commission is a predatory scheme. It's an objectifying scheme. It sees people as a means to the propagation of the religion's own ends. And it doesn't respect the life purpose and uniqueness of each individual. It co-ops our human identity and our sense of self and uses them for someone else's ends. And religion often functions as a total life identity system. It literally takes over our identity, our sense of self, and outsources it to a foreign deity, a foreign entity. When we pray the sinner's prayer, we ask Jesus to come into our hearts, take over our lives. My body is not my own. My life is not my own. We're, we're praying for spirit possession to be mm. dominated by a foreign entity. And Christians complain about demon possession. I, I can't think of any more oppressive spirit than this, this Holy Spirit who commands you to worship and obey him at the level of thought, emotion, action, the way you use your time upon punishment of hellfire torture. So this is an extreme form of oppression and abuse. And it does often tend to start when we're young, when we're vulnerable, when we're susceptible to the message. And, th and this is often in childhood for young children or for people who are in the midst of drug addiction or who are impoverished who are susceptible to this kind of a message, to indoctrination, uh, or who are looking for a sense of identity. And so, I mean, it really does tend to take over and co-op the identity. And so leaving religion often looks like a total identity crisis. Mm. You call it a crisis of faith. And when we, we have to reconstruct our entire way of living, relating to the world, relating to ourselves, uh, our community, because around this this system of indoctrination yeah i uh and you see it so much with um with other groups with other ideologies where you know other ideologies target young people to do the exact same thing that christianity does yet christians look at those other ideologies look at those other religions look at those other um groups and they think of them as predatory but what we're doing is the truth and we're doing it um out of love you know so that we can save people from hell um but pragmatically there really isn't a a difference that makes a difference there isn't really you know a difference in the outcomes and the techniques and stuff but i guess they would say that there's a difference in um a difference in i don't know if it's intention but the real life effects in um in people's real lives where if you have the holy spirit it's like ideally you're supposed to live a, a healthier life and um and you are empowered by the spirit to do good for others to do good in the world um but as so many of the criticisms of western christianity has shown there really isn't a difference that makes a difference with any of these other groups or ideologies where there is this sense of possession, um, it's almost always going to have negative consequences, especially, like you said, it's such an over-encompassing uh, thing where your identity is completely wrapped up in this other thing. Um, there really is 
uh, well, maybe I should pose that to you. Are there healthy versions of this? Are there, is there a healthy way to live with this identity? Well, is there a healthy way to live with an abusive spouse? Mm. Abusive people get by with their abuse because they also do good things. There's a mixture of love and threats of protection and harm that happens. If it was all bad, people would run away. The abuse would be really obvious. And people stay in abusive relationships often because the abuser is a really good person. He's nice, he gives me money, he loves me, but then every so often he threatens you and says, I'll kill you if I leave you. And that's what these systems of oppression do. And so often people silence me or get angry with me when I point out these very clear and apparent abuses that are in the Bible, that are in the religious texts. And they say, well, what about all the good things that we do? And this is, what if we had someone who was a sexual abuser on trial and he said, well, why do you always pay attention to the women I abuse? I treat so many women well. (laughs) Would we listen to him? No, I mean, abuse is abuse and it needs to be heard and named and disowned. And we can have a conversation about the good things it does, but so often it does good things by bad means. And why not use good means to produce good ends? Sure, it, it can, sure, hellfire can produce more living, right? But but why don't we use something healthier like love to do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think a lot of Christians would say that it is love. It is, um, you know, they're trying to produce produce a kingdom of love so that it you know it spreads and love comes out to your actions. And I'm trying to defend something that I make very similar critiques of, and I think that voices like yours are super important because even if you are committed to some form of reconstruction of a tradition like Christianity or something like it, um, these kind of conversations have to be had because you're not going to get somewhere that is good in the end um, if you overlook these things. So I think that this is really important. But Well, the problem is, is that these abusive doctrines and messages are at the very core of the biblical ideology and framework. Mm. Like they're, they're very foundational and core. They're not just peripheral issues. It's not just a scripture here and there. These are some of the, I, I mean, the, the kingdom of God, for instance, mm-hmm. the, the whole model of God is based off of an authoritarian, ancient Near Eastern tyrannical king. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not love. Fear is primary. Why? Because king, ancient kings generally ruled through oppression and fear. They were the rulers because they were the the brutal guys who got away with their crimes, and people bowed before them so they couldn't conceal an enemy because the king was afraid someone else might kill him and take his place, and he had to establish his reign through brutality. Most monarchs were not good. They were imperialistic. They sought obedience and worship. And this king, Yahweh, was an, was an ancient Near Eastern deity, and he was a war deity. And he was taken up uh, into the, as, the, as the one true God by Israelites after they, they used to be polytheists, not monotheistic. But they were brutally oppressed by foreign empires for many, many years. And so they had this war deity who could save them and rescue them. And he would look at him. He's a vengeful deity. He slaughters his enemies. He, and his kingdom is a kingdom of, of brutality. 
and obedience is the end goal. Paul says it's the obedience of faith. I mean, I mean, it's about serving the king of kings, and it's not about love. Love is a side benefit. Love is there, but it's a means to an end, which is not really love. Unconditional love means loving you for who you are, not whether you obey me or whether you do something. Uh, but this this kingdom rule runs throughout the whole Bible, in the book of Genesis, the creation mandate, Adam and Eve are vassal kings and queens, to do- and they're commanded to dominate and subject nature to the authority of the king. Then Israel establishes this kingdom, and it's, and it's spread through literal war in the Old Testament, including genocide, and then the New Testament makes it worse, not better. It becomes an ideological holy war, a jihad, where where everyone is meant to become to come under the king's authority through complete obedience at the level of thought and emotion and ideology and if not the king comes back in the end with ma- weapons of mass destruction in the book of revelation he literally kills most of nature destroys most of the planet slaughters most of humanity and establishes two concentration camps called heaven and hell heaven isn't really much better than hell when you think about it because heaven, I mean, heaven just feels nicer than hell. It's still authoritarianism, and it's just using pleasure to establish someone else's tyrannical rule. It's about the worship of an egotist, of a narcissist who centers everything around him and doesn't mind torturing and oppressing most people to get his way. This kingdom it really violence is at the core of this thing, and it's a kind of violence against our autonomy and our, our self-will, about our self-actualization, about being the people that we're meant to be, following our hearts, following our dreams, all of that gets subsumed under this world evangelism thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you're talking about uh, God as the tyrannical king, and there is a progression of metaphors for God throughout Scripture. Um, and the ones that, you know, that we tend to talk about today, uh, I guess, depending on where you are, but the more popular ones are the relational or the familial, uh, metaphors, God is father. And sorry, that is always, um, it's something that I have found myself thinking about a lot in the last few years, the idea of God as father and these relational metaphors. Um, and you know, the idea of love that, God loves us and we are supposed to love like him. But if you start to just look under the surface of those metaphors and how we live versus how God acts in, in the scriptures, uh, it's a very different kind of love. Uh, where I, I think you would agree a love for, you know, from a father to a son is supposed to be, like you said, it's supposed to be accepting of who they are and um, allowing the child to grow up in their own uh, autonomy and identity. And you're supposed to, you know, basically raise them to thrive on their own, to be independent from you and not just obedient. Um, but then the love of God portrayed in scriptures is a very different kind of love. Can you talk more about those so, familial metaphors? So this is the love of God the Father. You are bad, you're wicked, you're not good enough. You're born evil and deserving of judgment. You're untrustworthy. You can't trust your heart. You can't trust your mind, your critical thinking. You need to constantly look to me in order to save you from your own corruption and wickedness. Shame on you just for being born. What what kind of mother looks at her newborn child and says, you're bad. You deserve wrath and punishment. 
you can't trust yourself. I mean, that is as backwards as it gets. That's so counter instinct, right? Yeah. I mean, every every new parent sees their child and thinks this is a beautiful baby that has an incredible purpose. I can't even imagine you're deserving of all the best things in the world. But the idea of original sin is a complete reversal of of nature, of the way things are. And it's it's a systematic shaming that's meant to break down our self-reliance, our faith in ourself, our trust in our innate goodness and our intuition to sell us into slavery, into a master-slave relationship. The relationship that the Bible actually presents is a master-slave relationship. It's not a loving, romantic relationship. There is romance, but there's also abuse. And that's my point here. Mm. And there can be both that, that happen. I don't need to deny all the bad things, but to say there's so much abuse that goes on here that you know, there are other frameworks that, that are more helpful. We don't need to keep defending the indefensible. In fact, one of my biggest issues with with uh, liberal Christianity is that so often the the progressive Christians are the ones who fight me or oppose me when I talk about religious abuse mm-hmm. uh, because they because these concepts are in the Bible and they're so plain and apparent. They're not they're often very simple messages. And not this. This isn't some like super complex philosophical jargon. It's just really, really apparent. Um, but but people see this as a threat uh, to their entire tradition, and and maybe it is. But but I think whatever religion or perspective we take, we need to not try to reinterpret abuses. Or, or explain them away and say, well, if we interpret this differently, it's not really abuse. It's actually love, and we apply this. No, abuse is abuse. This is an evil scripture. This can't be God and abuse at the same time. It is manipulation, and it's not right. It's immorality. And we can't have this double standard. It doesn't work. You can't go around saying God is love and then having it an abusive, wrathful, vengeful monster that that you would condemn as sadistic anywhere else that you see them. And we do see them doing this. We do see Christians rightfully opposing fascists and fascism. And they've done a great job at that throughout the millennia. But then look at look at this God who commands genocide, who commands systematic oppression of women and killing of gays, and again, total obedience at the level of thought and emotion. And total narcissism. Everything is about him. Everything's about his ego and puffing it up. What about the the people? At, I mean, real love would say, I want what's best for you. I want you to be actualized and free. And so this is, this is fascism. This is, I mean, this is up there. I mean, this puts the greatest dictators of history to shame. Right. The notion of hell. I mean, you can't get more evil genius than that. So why are we trying to defend traditions that embrace these kinds of viewpoints? Maybe because it's it's painful to let go of, of these traditions and these identities. Uh, and I understand that. Yeah, um, I guess, um, you know, and I'm, and I'm tracking with everything you're saying, and I agree with so much of what you're saying. But um, as a living tradition, Christianity, as many other living traditions it can reinvent itself right it can 
come up with new ways of interpreting things and not just new ways of interpreting things like the things that we're talking about. There's some passages in scripture that forever and always must, we must see as absolutely horrendous. Uh, I completely agree with you there. But then there is a progression. And, you know, what I, what my point is, is the Bible is a library of different voices and you see this, these tensions. And I guess the value in scripture that I see and many others see is, are those tensions. And of course, we have to admit the humanity of the scriptures and, and admit how much of, uh, of humanity and culture is built into the scriptures, which I actually think makes it interesting and brings life to it. Uh, but like you said, we don't have to just accept these things or reinterpret them in some way where we are just completely ignorant or naive, willingly naive to just the absolute horror of some of these passages. But we can also say, well, there's a new or a different way to um, move on from here, not just reinterpret it or ignore it or, you know, try to sell it as something sweeter, but we can turn away from these and actually we can use this as a as a, a mark in the ground where we don't want to go, that we can actually use this as, you know, a regulative idea to move away from. Uh, are you interested in anything like that? I see in that movement often a tendency of denial and clinging to something just for the sake of clinging to it. Mm-hmm. And and I think it often shuts us off from the expansiveness of being free mm-hmm. from what no longer serves us or what has caused us harm. And that I, I guess at this point, I, I do see a lot of value within certain biblical concepts, uh, but, but I just see more uh, forms of spirituality and other traditions as having a lot more insight and I, I, I'm not really sure what's so original about the Bible anymore. Again, there's yeah. certain pearl, there's certain pearls in there, but it just at, at some point it, it it felt like when I was in it, I was just trying to cling to the sense of identity and connection to tradition that I had, and I'm so glad that I don't anymore because I have so much more freedom and room to breathe, actually experiencing spirituality for myself. Yeah. Yeah, that uniqueness of Scripture is definitely one of the idols that starts to crumble when you look at these things honestly. The uniqueness of Scripture, like so many other traditions, have very similar things. And that's actually, from where I'm standing, um, from the way that I you know, am thinking about Christianity and traditions in general, that kind of continuity and the dissimilarity, uh, or the similarity, I should say, between like Christianity and other cultures is actually like a an enforcing thing, a reinforcing thing. I'm certainly not a universalist, but um, I it helps me to think that you know the ideas and humanity have kind of co-evolved with each other in different places, um, building up. Because I mean, that kind of gives me some hope that it doesn't take just one tradition or one idea to get right. You know that you can. Not shop around, but you can look around and you can gather the good from different traditions and kind of create your own tradition, so to speak. Create your own your own path. Is that something you're interested in? Absolutely. I mean, I'm interested in, in spiritual awakening mm. and people awakening to their own spiritual experience. And dogmatism is is a kind of authoritarianism. It's a surrendering of my own sense of perception and trust in myself 
to someone else's authority. It's an outsourcing of authority, and faith is is a surrender uh, to authority of others as well. And so with spirituality, in my experience of it, it's about trusting your own experience, learning to tune into your intuition. Mm-hmm. And and part of what, what people experience often when they leave religion is grieving the death of God because yeah. God was this like a, a lover. God was the primary relationship. But what I've discovered coming out of it is that God was me all along. Everything that I thought was a voice from God or this emotional relief was actually my, my own intuition, my own power. So you have a godlike power to guide yourself, to comfort yourself, to experience spirituality. And healing and inspiration comes most powerfully from within, from really realizing your divinity. So in a way, I think the solution to a lot of religious abuse is idolatry, is really understanding ourselves as God and understanding nature as God. And that the aliveness of ourselves and our connection to the rest of reality, that that God or the central locus of authority and experience of reality is within us and is within everything. It's not outside of us. There's no separation. This this is really a dualistic separation-based view of reality yeah. that, that divides nature against itself. Mm-hmm. Spirit versus nature, spirit versus science. And and there's there's so much hostility here, even a war against nature and a war against death. And and it comes from a misunderstanding of reality, of nature itself. This idea of divinity is something that's beyond us that we have to search for. We have to give up our agency in order to access it. Mm. And and so really for me, the whole framework is a misunderstanding of reality itself. The idea of God is something that's outside. If we want to use, you know, that kind of terminology, some people are uncomfortable with that terminology. Mm. Yeah, I, uh, I'm definitely interested in... A more relational and non-dualistic view of um, of humanity and nature and mind and body. I, as a pragmatist, I think that those bridges, um, or I, I'm interested in building those bridges rather than keeping those distinctions sharp. Um, so, I, I'm sorry. Yeah. So, so maybe I can get into that for a second on the nature thing. Yeah. Sure. So there's an idea of hostility to nature that is often espoused. Uh, even within religion. Again, that, that creation mandate involved the subjugation of nature, and we're often taught to view ourselves as separate from nature, supernatural, superior to nature, mm-hmm. not a part of it. Uh, and and you see animal sacrifice and human sacrifice being commanded in Scripture. There's this giant cult of millions and millions of animal sacrifices, and now we have an ideological human sacrifice that happens again and again. We're taught to bear our cross, crucify our desires whenever it doesn't fit what is religiously sanctioned. Mm-hmm. We're, we're to surrender that desire. But so really, we are nature. We're not separate from it. We're not right. opposed to it. And there's no separation at an ultimate level. And and this this comes into the, the fear of death. A lot of religion uses, bases its manipulation on our fear of death. In the Bible, it says the last enemy to be destroyed is death in 1 Corinthians. And life is kind of viewed as this war against death. And eternal life is the goal, right? It's yeah. never dying defeating death. But death isn't the enemy. It's a p- fundamental pattern of nature. It's actually an ally and a teacher. 
And any ideology that treats death as an enemy militates against nature. And really, nature is is the creator. Nature is the creation. And we try to escape death through eternal life or through medicine in our society. But to be healthy, we need to learn to embody the principle of death in our daily life. And death is the antidote to fear, not the cause of fear. A lot of cultures don't have this extreme fear of death because they view it as part of nature. I mean, in dying, we lose our sense of ego and our separation, but existence transmutes, it changes form. We really, at an atomic level, I'm connected to the rest of nature and reality. Like a a fundamental move in my atomic nature changes you on some level, Mm -hmm. and the whole universe functions like it's a living organism. And it reproduces, it has sex, animals have sex, plants have sex, galaxies have sex and reproduce. Right. Like the Big Bang was like this massive orgasm, an explosion of life. We see this this sexuality, this reproduction of life, this natureness in everything, and death is a part of that. And so the lessons of death are things like like sleeping, surrendering, letting go, uh, living in the moments, you know, suffering never that doesn't last forever so we can integrate death into our life like life isn't meant to be taken so seriously all the time because nothing lasts forever and so uh, really when we we try to annihilate death we're stopping ourselves from living in the present mm-hmm. and th- but again this is this is a a lesson that's contra nature it's trying to defeat nature because it views ourselves as separate from and in a war against nature and even in a war against ourselves our very nature because our nature is to do evil and to do bad we're so there's so much to it here but but if we understand our fundamental aliveness and sense of connection to everything uh, then, then I think we uh, a view of cosmology starts to emerge that makes more sense of morality yeah, I, I follow you in, on a lot of those points, especially the um, the non-duality of mind and body, of nature and humanity. I think that we are part of nature, and we we can't talk about ourselves as separate from nature ultimately. And um, the idea of death not as this thing that we have to escape, but that we have to accept. Uh, I struggle with the idea of thinking about death as a good thing. I tried to follow that. Um, uh, I can't remember the guy who says it, but I can't quite seem to follow the idea that death is a good thing for me. You know, I'm, and I'm speaking phenomenologically. I'm not talking overall. Overall, it, it has to be. It just has to be the case. And I'm a naturalist in that sense. I think that once we die, it's lights out. Any ideas of an afterlife is can only ever be a hope if 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 that but i don't think that it is i don't think an afterlife is guaranteed by any means whatsoever um and i do think that death has to be accepted though and i think that it has to be accepted as a as a regulative um ideal as something that that gives meaning to our life now like you were saying as something that that gives context to our entire life i mean it it 
I mean, we think as human beings, we're, we're storied creatures. We think of everything in narrative. And death really does give the end chapter, the last, you know, the last dot, the end to the whole thing. And maybe that's why we're storied creatures. Maybe the very fact that we became conscious of death is why we've become so, um, just so one with like narrative. Um, I mean, that's definitely a hypothesis I could look more into, but. I do think that death needs to be accepted, but the idea that death is a good thing or that we can train ourselves to think of death as a good thing, I'm not sure if I can follow that line of thought exactly, and I'm not sure if the consequences are necessarily good. I think that it trains us to to overlook or rationalize certain other things in our lives if we're rationalizing the, the goodness of it. Well, I think that death is neither good nor bad. It just is. Okay. And that there's a way in which we can accept it as opposed to rage against it and integrate the lessons of how the natural world works and how we work Mm -hmm. and lead better, more efficient, more fulfilled lives as a result of that. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying that we can or necessarily should get rid of all our dear, our fear of death, you know, or that, that it's this wonderful, beautiful thing, Yeah. but it's, it's definitely not our enemy. And it, it definitely learning these lessons of death and integrating them can relieve us from a lot of the anxieties we face in life. Mm-hmm. And, but really my main concern here is exposing religious abuse or biblical abuse and seeing that religion for for most people in the world, most people live in fundamentalist religions in the world. That's mm-hmm. the dominant ideological framework of humanity still to this day. And most religions function as systematic systems of oppression. Um, and people tend to want to overlook these abuses. Uh, most religions will blame the abuse on other religions right. and say, we're not the ones doing it. And this includes liberal religion a lot of times is, is, is not owning up to, well, these are in our textbooks and we're promoting these textbooks. Mm-hmm. And as long as I promote a textbook as the word of God that ha- contains the oppression of women, the genocide, uh, this total ideological submission, people are going to believe those concepts. Even if I have all the fancy explanations in the world, people are still going to see what's in the book and you know, embrace fundamentalism or end up embracing subtler versions of these manipulations. Mm. Uh, so we need to recognize and be attentive to h- how these might be taking shape in our own experiences and call that out and be willing to question it even when it's painful. And uh, so also I think that most people leave these systems because of their sincerity and integrity, because of their desire to be obedient. And I find that uh, people who end up leaving are really sincere and really want to be healthy and well. And they try the system to its max and it doesn't work for them. And uh, the reason that I left was because I was just tremendously anxious. I was full of fear and anxiety. Uh, I was totally ashamed of my sexuality. I hated sexuality. I viewed it as a curse from God because sex was bad. I mean, if you can't have sex until you're married and you're not married, then sex is bad. Yeah. Sexual activity has the power to throw you into hell, just having a sexual thought or fantasy. And so these kinds of ideas are extremely toxic to emotional health and well-being. And there, there's all kinds of anxiety and fear uh, within this religion system, 
But when people leave, it, it kind of opens up the floodgates because there was a lid on it when we were in religion. There were there were th- mechanisms in place to keep it at bay, mm-hmm. right? Like you, you had this talk of unconditional love or of, uh, of assurance of salvation, even though that's not really assured and it was always kind of shaky. But so now when you leave, the fear of hell was always there. Yeah. And that's why you were in the religion. But it was kept at bay. And now when people leave, there's like an explosion of all these symptoms of, of say, depression or narcissism or, or paranoia. They were always there, but now there's nothing to contain them anymore. So this identity crisis and this this thing that looks like PTSD, religious trauma, occurs. And my interest is explaining why that happens, what the psychological mechanisms were that created the problem, and how we heal from the wake of that. Yeah, that was um, it's one of the early one of the early things I realized um, before I started to seriously doubt my religion um, was the idea of health Um, and the idea that if God is real, he couldn't possibly want his people to be unhealthy. And I was just looking at all these different things like we've been talking about um, and these unhealthy outcomes of certain beliefs and certain ways of believing. And it just started to put a little bit of a crack in the facade of a lot of the things that we're talking about right now. And so that was like the first step towards me like progressing away from like my own fundamentalisms was this kind of like pragmatic test of health. This idea that, you know, the right way to believe is th- is that which puts me in a healthier position in life, the one that makes me psychologically healthier, physically healthier, whatever because I mean, I can't be I can't do all that I'm meant to do if I'm, you know, unhealthy, if I'm depressed, if I'm having panic attacks or if I can't move from the couch. That can't possibly be God's will. And so it started off as kind of my first like pragmatic test towards like better ideas than like the fundamentalisms that I was raised with. That's that's right. And a great way to test the ideas we find within our religious traditions in the Bible is to say, if this idea was found anywhere else, would I believe it or would I reject it? And we tend to sanitize ideas we find in religious texts because we tend to sanitize religion in general. Mm. But, you know, if there's an idea that says, says, if you read anywhere, you will be tortured with fire forever if you don't obey. Would you accept that or would you reject it? The only reason we accept these kinds of ideas is because we've been taught to believe what's in this book. Mm-hmm. And and really, uh, testing something on the grounds of mental health is, is, is basing your life on integrity, on wholeness. Does this make me whole or does it not make me whole? Right. And I think that's a great way to, to really test things is, is the basis of health. And I, I see the creation of different psychological mechanisms that result in all kinds of, I guess, mental illness for, or dysfunction uh, within religion. For instance, fundamentalism thrives by creating a sense of unsafety, and anxiety drives religious devotion. Right. So life has all kinds of dangers, right? You can get in a car accident. You can get cancer. Stuff happens, But what fundamentalism does is it exaggerates the threats and it creates imaginary threats. Mm -hmm. Most of the dangers we face in life are manageable 
actually most of our anxiety comes from worrying from things that aren't real yeah. and learning how to deal with that in our day and age. That's mm-hmm. the, the main issue is not actual unsafety. But in fundamentalism, you have these massive threats of, he- of health, for instance, of divine judgment when you don't do the right thing, of the rapture, of being left behind, or of uh, like this message, you know, you could die at any moment. You better make sure you're right with God. Th- this exaggerations and this sense of danger, our mind is a dangerous place. Yeah, It's an unsafe place because if I think an unsanctioned or disobedient thought, that, that could put my very life, my soul in eternal jeopardy. The world is an unsafe place to live because unbelievers could influence me to into temptation or into sin and I might lose my salvation or we might face national judgment and foreign invasion. Uh, again, my mind is unsafe place because of demons, because of outside influences. If I even consider another ideology, I could get possessed by an evil spirit. Yeah. So there are there's all this unsafety, these unreal imaginary threats that create a sense of paranoia. I mean, people are out to get me. God is out to get me. My own mind's out to get me. The world is out to get me. So this is this is actually the stuff of, of paranoia. It's the stuff of anxiety disorders. And, and we see mind control as well. So you can even view God as a psychological implant implanted by religious authorities as a means of control, a control surveillance mechanism. And, I mean, the Bible says to uh, that, that God searches our hearts and examines our minds to pay back everyone according to what they're according to what they've done. And we're taught to uh, lean not in our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge Him, and He'll make our path straight. And to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So we're literally thought to police our minds and subject them to the divine rule. Does this thought or emotion fit what the religious system, what God wants? And if not, we're under threat. It's life-threatening to have a bad thought or emotion. Like like literally at, at a psychic level, that a bad thought is associated with eternal torture or with all kinds of different things. So this is a powerful means of mind control and of fear, and it creates obsessive compulsive thinking. Because if I'm at threat from my own thoughts, I have to constantly police my mind and my emotions uh, to keep myself safe. And what that does is it, ke- it, it creates looping, spiraling thoughts, praying the sinner's prayer thousands of times a day, going to church, confessing my sins. These are ritual obsessive compulsive rituals meant to stave off the anxiety of judgment that was actually created by the system in the first place to induce a drug-like dependency on the system but it only creates more anxiety it gives a temporary relief like a drug or like an obsessive compulsive ritual but it reinforces the sense of anxiety that it created in the first place so i just mentioned uh Anxiety, the formation of paranoia, anxiety disorders, mind control, and emotional – there's so much emotional unwellness and psychological mechanisms that are in place within these systems to keep people in them. Yeah, It's but, really severe. It's very, yeah. very severe. Yeah, and I follow you in all that. Um, you certainly – 
paint a damning picture of something that I am quite aware is um, extremely prevalent in American Christianity, in Western Christianity, and these sort of fundamentalisms. Um, I mean, and in drawing the picture or putting it the way that you are, you see the comparisons to Soviet Russia, to um, to Hitler's Germany, where you have these fascists, these these dictators who are all about control and authoritarianism, using these techniques on their people. That today, you know, especially Americans, we'd look at that and we'd say, absolutely not, we're never going to have that here. Yet, so many of us um, opt in for just that kind of dynamic in our religious lives and uh you know it it really is prevalent and terrible yes but it's also in the bible and some traditions emphasize these these things more than others but but these are scriptures in the bible i mean scriptures in the bible describe the relationship with god as a master slave relationship mm. we're slaves we're bought with a price we're not our own any action that we do is only good if it's done for the service of the deity. If yeah. we're living a surrendered life as an empty vessel, not living for ourselves, but for the worship of, of this God. So all of this kind of language of spirit possession and, and a paranoia and anxiety and a threat and hellfire torture, you know, th- there are so many scriptures and lines that I could give, and they're throughout the Bible too. It's not just in one book or place. Uh, and and in the New Testament too, often the New Testament takes Old Testament teachings to a more extreme degree. Like Jesus takes perfectionism to a moral extreme. He makes the Ten Commandments about not just behavior, which you could say this is in the Old Testament too, but it's it's about perfectly obeying in your thoughts and your mind. So again, this gets into thought policing and God being the thought police and and having this this perfect standard that you can never obtain. So it's a, a slave driver relationship to, to your ideology and to your view of yourself. And it's very, it's very cruel. So, so it's uh, what people often do is say, well, you're painting this picture and you know, that certain forms of the religion. And, and I say, well, let's look at these scriptures and what do you do with them? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you're talking about, the kind of mind control and the manipulation and the abuse and going back to how we began the the conversation with with your story and I said that I had a very similar story the idea of taking this baggage we can call it and taking it to what you termed uh, unreached people groups people who have never heard the gospel or haven't been connected with the gospel and bringing that baggage over to it I mean you can just see it as abusive as imperialistic as you know just absolutely terrible I mean maybe you can say more on um, that kind of stand or that kind of idea of evangelism or missionaries yeah well the Great Commission is kind of the king's recruitment manifesto. Go and make recruits of all nations or disciples. And we're commanded to accomplish this imperialistic manifesto at all costs, including giving our all our possessions away, sacrificing our careers, and even our lives in martyrdom if that's necessary. Because it's not about us. And, and so... I mean, I want to see human flourishing. My dream in the world is to see people fully having full access to their incredible, beautiful nature 
And so many people sacrifice their dreams. And there's so many artists and architects and who knows what that are just surrendering their identities and their life purpose to this evangelistic thing because they think that that's where they can get their meaning instead of being themselves. And so death for the sake of the king is considered the highest honor, even though it violates the personhood of the person and the foreign culture he's going to conquest. I, and I'm, again, this this Great Commission thing, it's it's ideological violence, even when it's done peacefully. It's, it's an imperialistic message that seeks obedience, and it's a means of reproduction. Uh, conversion is how the religious system reproduces itself, and, and, and it's exploitative. I mean, it, it doesn't serve people. It's about allegiance to the, to the king of kings. And this supreme leader, who's God, this dictator, proclaims a superior race in the form of Israel— or the Christian nation, um, and he conquers by pitting humans against each other into warring camps of the chosen and the damned. So it, it, it creates a view of the world, too, of the in and the out, those who are saved and those who are damned, those who are chosen and those who are not. And it's a really unhealthy way of viewing humanity and reality or people who don't agree with us. Mm-hmm. It's 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 not about love it's it, love and service are warped into means of conversion and conquest so hospitals and recovery clinics and food kitchens are set up as recruitment camps They're, so why can't we just set these things up just for their own sake right why do we have to preach th- this message here uh, i mean this it's it's just a it's a conquesting thing it, it doesn't serve people yeah i'm just thinking um you know, I I agree with this this picture that you're painting about this like metaphysical realist uh, fundamentalist God. Like I completely agree that there isn't this um, supreme being as a king, you know, ordering us to do as well as as you painted. Um, but when I think of nature earlier, we were talking about nature. I I see a lot of these same things in nature itself. I see a nature that can be cruel and can be forgiving. I see a, a nature that um, rewards some and doesn't reward others. And I see a world where if you act in certain ways, you can actually come to navigate the world better than if you act in other ways. And mm-hmm. so what I've come to for myself in my own naturalist way and certainly not you know as I used to, I kind of read scripture naturalistically and psychologically where being or reality itself is is god which rewards some and doesn't reward others and there are certain ways to act that will be adaptive to the environment in other ways that aren't and so my job as a quote-unquote righteous man or human being is to figure out what those ways are and it's not always obvious but it's through action. It's through engaging with the environment that I figure that same thing out in a similar way that Christians or followers will say that it's through engaging with God that you find out his will. And so in an analogous and metaphorical way, um, I see life or being as God that I am trying to engage with in the real environment, in real life itself to figure out, okay, what are the ideals and what are the things I need to move away from? What are the conceptual rules and 
and strategies and methods to navigate this world in a successful way rather than in a decon or a destructive way. Um, and you can think of heaven on earth just as much as hell on earth. I mean, I believe as a naturalist, I, I believe in hell a lot more than I believe in heaven. I see it all around me. I see it in people that I love and people who I hold dear. I see hell all over the place. Sometimes I experience hell. And I, and you know, sometimes you get a glimpse of heaven and you say to yourself, I want more of that. There's got to be a way to get more of that and in a way to spread more of that. And so I'm interested in, in thinking about these things in, in that way, where perhaps there's a way of reading these scriptures as a tradition of people living in the world, in the real world. And we need to get away from these fundamentalist literalist pictures and more towards this uh, a humanist naturalist way of of thinking of these things i'm just speculating or 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 you know playing and with ideas I, yeah i i have a trust in humanity mm-hmm. and i think that the answer to our problems is not conformity but is openness and healing yeah and, and most of our problems and pain come from a lack of awareness. Mm. We're going around in our lives, living out our traumas, and, and with no awareness of why we, we do the actions, why we take the actions that we take and do the things that we do. Right. And, and as we increase and cultivate self-awareness and gain access to our hearts and our authentic nature, we start to function out of integrity and in alignment with our nature and with the greater nature that we're a part of. And things start to make sense. So I trust the design of nature, if you will, or I I trust people to be who they are. And I think that morality is is a a matter of unlocking human potential, not blocking Mm -hmm. it or constraining it. And and that, that when we increase people's awareness and when we allow them to flourish then these oppressions start to unwind themselves. So this, this to me is the opposite approach of fundamentalism and of evangelism yeah. because it's saying, hey, like, don't listen to my, to my way of being or, or the, my idea of the scheme of system, but tune into yourself. Trust your heart. Trust your intuition. You are good enough. You are beautiful. You are loving. And, and there's a way out out of this but it's through embracing your suffering and through embracing the parts of yourself you don't like not rejecting it not projecting it onto some other system or or outsourcing your identity so and i think this this kind of framework that i'm getting at i don't really f- find it that much uh, within the the biblical tradition. Yeah. Um, I, I found it more powerfully outside of it. Mm. So I, I'm happy to embrace it wherever I find it um, in the Bible. But but this kind of humanism or, or spirituality, I find a lot more of it actually in Eastern traditions and Eastern yeah. spirituality and philosophies. Um, and actually experiencing for altered states of consciousness or non-ordinary states of consciousness where the things that I'm talking about are... are more than conceptual, they start to become experiential. Yeah. Yeah, and I can appreciate all of that. So if I was to bring someone who, um, you know, is your typical fundamentalist Christian come realize that the world isn't operating the way that they grew up to think it was, that God isn't who they thought 
that he was, and they're experiencing this crisis of faith, and they're experiencing all the the ailments that come with that. How would you walk someone through that process and through um, that condition? Where would you begin with them? In terms of getting healing? Yes, healing. I think one of the first things is to recognize that this is a major life crisis, maybe on the scale of of having a divorce or even losing losing a loved one. Mm-hmm. It's one of the most major crises we can have in the in our lives. It's hugely disruptive. Uh, our whole lives, our whole identities were based on this system, and most of our needs were met by it. Our sense of belonging, spirituality, community, our existential meaning, so much is at stake here. And when we lose all that, it's very disruptive. It can be very traumatic. It usually is very traumatic. So a lot of times people just want to just don't give themselves permission to grieve or to need to process and make that life change. And they just want to fix it all at once. And I get that. But what needs to happen first is an acceptance of what has happened the amount of loss and and that it's going to take some real time and resource to address this thing. And I really encourage people to commit to themselves and to commit to their own healing. Like you're going to you're going through this whether you like it or not. Usually people don't leave as a conscious choice. In fact, they're fighting to stay in because right. it means so much. And leaving is such a painful hard process, but it's it's something that you're confronted with. You're going to face it whether you like it or not. So embrace it and sign up for healing. Mm. Do the hard work because you, you'll only benefit from it. This is also an opportunity for you to reconstruct your identity from the ground up to rebuild life in a way that serves you now that kind of everything's been stripped away. So actually do the hard work. Uh, examine your traumas. Examine your upbringing. And, and see what you don't like in your life and really rebuild in a, in a more methodical way. But this is not an easy thing. And we're talking, we're dealing with years and years of indoctrination usually, often from early childhood. And these things affect us in, in ways that we're very unconscious of, very deep emotional ways. And so really I encourage people to get therapy. Mm. Honestly, I think that almost everyone who does this find a way to get therapy. Yeah. Uh, because so much of this stuff is are things that we can't see. We're caught in these cycles. And if, if we can find a way to get some kind of professional help, I think that's the best way to do this. Because this is a very big crisis. It's not to be taken lightly. It really impacts us in a lot, in a lot of major ways. Yeah, and I don't think it should be done alone. You know, whether you find a therapist or others like you, there's support groups online. Uh, I think that so much of the horror of these crises of faith come from the perceived isolation of it and the loneliness of it. You feel like you are the only one going through something like that, that there is no other side, but there are a lot of people who've gone through it and who've gotten to the other side are healthier than they were before and can help you walk through that. I know, you know, me and so many people that I know would be absolutely, you know, just thrilled. I mean, maybe thrilled's the a weird word to use, but would be absolutely honored to help 
other people walk through something like that. I'm sure you do. I mean, you're dedicating your life to that um, because it's something that, you know, that we realize can't be done alone and it shouldn't be done alone and should definitely find people. Where would you direct people um, who are going through something like that? Are there specific places or forums that people can check out when if they're going through that kind of process? There's actually something called the Clergy Project. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's a program for ministers or religious clergy and professionals who have lost their faith or are questioning their faith, but they're still in their religious vocations because they need to feed their family. Right. And so I was part of this program, and it gave me hope. It helped me specifically to transition my career and and move on with my life. So that's a great resource if you're in a religious vocation. It's it's really growing in its membership right now. And this is part of the thing, too. A lot of people think that I'm the only one going through this because you don't know anyone else who's going through it. But there may there probably are people in your church community who are, too, and they don't tell people for the same reason that you're not telling people. Because tons of people leave religion, and that includes Bible professors and evangelists like me. Yeah. Uh, but usually they're not very vocal about it when they're in the process or even after because of the, the repercussions for community and the shame and not wanting to be drawn back in. So it's a very common experience, and there are a lot of people who, who share that experience. So the Clergy Project is one one group. I mean, and mostly there's 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 literature and there's some online support groups um, and again, I have my blog and my my coaching service that I offer too. And there's just a number of professionals. But I think the main thing is 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 starting to educate yourself about the process and signing up for the committing to the journey of healing, and not viewing it as something that's an overnight thing. Like think about a process of say maybe five years that might be more realistic. And not to say that it'll all be the same level of suffering during that time, but it really is in a, a, a major enterprise, uh, one that that is rewarding though. One, it's an enterprise also of finding yourself, having access to your heart and your desires, your intuition, having spiritual experiences and being able to really do what it is that you do best. So, so it's a message of, of freedom. That yeah. I see freedom as the issue here. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That definitely comes out in in your message, and I think that that is an important message. Um, we're coming to the end of our time. If you have any parting words for this um, this hypothetical person going through the crisis, because I think there's a lot of them. Uh, I was one of them. I probably still am one of them. Um, and I, you know, much of what I'm trying to do on the show is give voices to people just like that who are on various stages of that process, whether it's in the very beginning, denying that there's even problems to their faith, or halfway through, not sure where to go, or even on the other side, and trying to figure out where do I even begin reconstructing things. Um, what parting words would you give them? And then you can uh, tell us where people can find you online. Yeah. Love yourself. Have compassion on yourself. Be good to yourself. Self-love, I, I don't think, is a message that tends to be emphasized uh, within biblical frameworks. It's it's more about receiving love from an outside source. Mm. But but really, the love, uh, the healing comes in repairing the self-relationship. 
our relationship to ourselves has been fractured through ideas like sin or through total sexual repression. Uh, reject, we've rejected parts of ourselves as bad and dissociated from them. So healing comes in being with ourselves in our pain and having compassion for ourselves when, when, when I'm thinking these thoughts or, or, gosh, you know, why am I still entertaining the idea of hell or God's voice? I know it's not true, but I, I still think it's true. That's part of the process, you know, and that's okay to think that way and feel that way. It's normal. Really being patient and caring for yourself like a mother cares for her child, and learning to cultivate a different relationship with yourself and with your emotions, and not rejecting it as good or bad, learning to integrate. Um, and, and that's where a lot of the healing practice comes. Yeah, man. Well, I once again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people find you online and find your work if they want to hear more? You can find me at lifeafterdogma.org. Or my name is Andrew Jasko, J-A-S-K-O, on Twitter or Facebook, or andrewjjasko at gmail.com. And uh, so I'm available for coaching or consultation or speaking or, or just whatever. Yeah, well, hey, I really appreciate you coming on. I think that it's really important to have voices like yours out there. Um, what I am trying to do with my own work and with my own show is very much a reconstructive process. I'm trying to find what's the good in religion, what's the good in Christianity, and how can I reconstruct something without all the bad? And like we said in this show or in this conversation, like that does not involve ignoring the bad. It does not involve rationalizing the bad. It does not involve coming up with excuses for the bad, but really looking at it honestly. And I think that people like you help people like me do that and, and stay honest and keep us honest. Um, and I think it's just a really good thing. So thank you so much for coming on, man. It's been a pleasure. Uh-